we'll be diving into Benjamin. I feel like I'm saying his last name like incorrectly. I'm just gonna not say. No, how do you? How are you saying it? I don't know. Poindexter. Poindexter. Is this a? I I keep like thinking like Poindexter. Like French. (laughs) Poindexter. Welcome to Breakfast at the Beanery, a bi-weekly podcast about superheroes. I'm Becca. I'm Mika, and we're glad you're joining us as we break down our latest superhero obsessions. Follow us at BatBeanery on Twitter, at BreakfastBeanery on Instagram and Tumblr, and of course, you can check out our episodes on Castos and our website, www.breakfastbeanery.com. We polled. You voted. And so here we are, talking mental health on Daredevil and the Punisher. Initially, we wanted to tackle mental health in the Netflix Marvel Universe as a whole, but we're simply not equipped, as in we aren't as familiar with Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, and uh, reading the smudge ink on my hand, uh, Iron Fist. We have watched them. Some of them. It's been a while, so the details aren't as fresh. I basically retained nothing from Iron Fist except for Danny's tagline. Likewise, though, we want to put out a disclaimer outright that we are by no means experts or mental health professionals. Just two girls. Passionate about mental health. Super passionate about mental health. One of us has a podcast about it. Yeah, so I did a little over 10 episodes of Mika's Messy Mind, a podcast where I talk about my experience with mental illness, my journey with therapy, and honestly, it kind of served as an audio diary. So to that end, I will put out that I am someone who struggles with depression, anxiety, and borderline personality disorder, or BPD, and this is all relevant because we will be discussing characters who deal with depression and BPD, so I just wanted to give a little context to where my biases may lie. And speaking of biases, I'm going to kick things off for Best of Twitterature, the part of the show, where we pull random YouTube and Twitter comments with Dex from Daredevil. So the first one I have here is from at Jimmy Beavis. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mate, Daredevil season three may may be better than any MCU movie slash TV. I'm assuming he means show. Um, Also, Benjamin Poindexter equals BPD, so like his initials. What if all Marvel villains had names that coincided with their mental illness? I pulled this because it was an interesting take. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like, oh, I didn't notice that about uh, Dex. But then I was also like, huh? At the like latter part of what if all Marvel villains had names that coincided with their mental illness? That feels like... like it feels like something that little. they would do in Gotham. <laughs> yeah, that's a little Gotham-y. Like, every villain has an assigned mental illness. Like, um, a little so. campy, but, like, not in a good way. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the next one is from at the Pro Slacker. Watch Daredevil Season 3 was incredibly invested in how they portrayed Dex's borderline personality disorder. Open parentheses, multiple people I know suffer from it, and it's very accurate in a lot of ways, close parentheses. But otherwise, it's just a lot of meandering and feels kind of exploitative. So a little positive there and a little negative. Which is kind of, I guess, how we felt about it. Oh, here's... This is my favorite. From at Princess C... The Princess 
Sierra, I'm sorry. So jealous of Dex's BPD ass right now because he can afford a vacuum cleaner. You don't know how good you have it, Dex, you murdering moron. Mm-hmm. Hashtag daredevil, hashtag mental health awareness. And then they replied to their own tweet and said, for real though, the vilification of mental illness in this season is seriously annoying. I can relate to parts of the Dex character, which is why this is just freaking painful. Full blog post to follow, I expect. Hashtag Daredevil, hashtag borderline personality disorder, hashtag mental health awareness. Um, as we'll get into later, very relatable. <laughs> as I say, that's, you might as well have written that yourself. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of why we're here, isn't it? <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's a I think that character and Billy Russo, who we've pulled a few tweets from, I think we only did Twitter this time, are both big reasons that we were interested in doing this episode anyway. So the next one is about Billy and Krista's relationship in season two of The Punisher. And it's from at Austin Hayden. They said, not digging season two of Punisher nearly as much as the first, but damn, John Bernthal is legit, which is true. Mm-hmm. This season had ha- has had its moments, but this Billy Russo storyline, including the relationship with therapist, is not as compelling and rich. Also, some troubling gender dynamics, re-abusive relationships. So I think that's a big thing that is displayed in that particular relationship compared to how season one handled that character in particular. And I can read the last tweet that we have for this segment. I think it's very relatable. I mean, I keep saying relatable, but this is probably the one that Becca ghost wrote. Um, (laughs) At Sincerely sincerely, Owosa, Billy Russo's therapist is really unprofessional and she should be sacked. All in caps. And that's that on that. It's a mood, you know? (laughs) Like Yes. it, It was hard to watch. Absolutely. When I pulled that one, I was like, I mean, do I even need to pull anything else about this relationship? (laughs) I think this says it all. But if you are interested in the other tweets I found, I will be um, putting together a little montage at the end of this video slash episode. So if you're listening on Spotify or Castos, please please head to our YouTube channel if you want to see the montage. Yeah. Yeah, so we're definitely going to be exploring these characters that we just sort of took a glimpse at, but we'll start off by discussing how Daredevil handled mental health and go from there. First of all, Daredevil does a great job of exploring, in my opinion, of exploring trauma and depression as broad of an umbrella as those things can be. A lot of our protagonists face horrible events, so it's reasonable and almost expected to see them work through the pain involved. I think what Daredevil does well is allowing the characters to work through that, through their hurt, their insecurities, in a meaningful and an emotional way. And I'm in love with Karen Page, so maybe I'm biased, but we meet her through her trauma. She's introduced with a knife in her hands, confused and disoriented over the body of a dead co-worker on her apartment floor. And we know that she's experienced loss multiple times in her past because of flashbacks through season three. So we know that, you know, she's lonely, she's disconnected from her family, and she carries a lot of blame. So this kind of event would weigh tremendously heavy on her heart. We get to see a little bit of this, um, of her healing through her friendships with Matt and Foggy. And it's subtle, so it's not really in your face or kind of like exploiting her emotions, in my opinion, which makes moments like her fight with Wesley 
more impactful. There's a nice build with that character. Karen initially can feel misunderstood because she's putting on a face in an attempt to move on from her past. So the great thing about this show is that it had enough time to really flesh that out and like give us the flashback episode in season three or show her cope with her anger and her loneliness throughout this show in The Punisher. Yeah, so not to hop back on the castle train, though did we ever hop off, Mm -hmm. I think part of why that relationship is so compelling is because of how these characters respond to their trauma. So in Daredevil Season 2, whenever Frank and Karen have an exchange where the former shares about his family, where Frank shares how he's feeling when he speaks about loss, and then later on when Karen speaks about that after that I keep talking about in The Punisher Season 1, we can see through Karen's body language that really she's not just talking about Frank. She wants an after for him because she's living in that after of Kevin. Similarly, by the time we reach the fateful hospital scene of The Punisher Season 2, Karen takes that after a step further by telling Frank outright that he can choose to care for someone else, to love someone else, rather than choose another war. And of course, it's at this point we understand that they are at different points in processing and responding to their grief, much to my chagrin. When Frank says there isn't a light at the end of the tunnel for himself, Karen says that really it comes down to himself. And honestly, this self-perception is a recurring theme for both Frank and Matt. Their self-identity is clearly distorted, which is why we get to see them as the Punisher or as Daredevil. But who they are outside of these personas is kind of muddled. So Frank ties his identity to what he's done to avenge his family. He ties it to what he's lost or who he's lost. And especially by the end of The Punisher, he's racked with that immense guilt after being framed for the murders of three innocent women. And I find it kind of funny. I find it kind of sad. The dreams in which his family's dying. Okay. Um, I thought it was interesting that Frank is so averse to disrespecting veterans with PTSD in Daredevil season two, all the while clearly bypassing his own mental health struggles in both Daredevil and especially in The Punisher. And okay, let's say he doesn't have PTSD like he says, but what he went through was still incredibly traumatic. And not once do we see him confront that, except for maybe we can count the rather brief and vague conversations he's had with Karen, Curtis, and David. I mean, I guess he sort of relives and expresses what he's gone through when he talks to Matt. And speaking of the devil, as the audience, it's very clear that Matt has identity issues as well. I mean, season three was basically Matt Murdock's identity crises. Yeah, he struggles with his identity through the series, and we really see that culminate in this huge moment in season three. Like, Matt's really an intense character. He has a lot of aggression that he isn't sure what to do with, a moral compass that, by his own flaws, he is able to ignore depending on the situation. These are like qualities that impact his relationships, so it's not like they shouldn't be there or something. They really add to his character. I would say the same for Frank, too, in how he pushes people and his own future away. It's infuriating as hell to watch because you're rooting for them, but it feels natural for the characters. The difference here is that season three of Daredevil, despite them not knowing it would definitely be their last, actually wrapped up Matt's story in, you know, a pretty nice way. At least a positive way. 
He was able to figure out how he could live as Matt Murdock. This came, of course, through support from his loved ones, but also in that he finally forgave himself for all the things about himself that he didn't like. At the end of Defenders, Matt basically gives up. He doesn't even die, but we see how this affects him in season three of Daredevil when he pushes his friends away. And basically says that Matt Murdock is gone, so he chooses to just be Daredevil. If he had maybe reached out to a therapist and worked through his shit, then he wouldn't have gone through so much pain, but I guess that doesn't really feel entirely necessary for his story. He ends up pulling through and gains a better understanding of himself anyway. If I'm not mistaken though, he is one of the few characters that actually sort of dismisses or demonizes the idea of therapy. Like, I don't have receipts on hand, it's been a little bit since we watched. But I know it had been suggested or discussed, and he really wasn't for it. Mm -hmm. He did often confide in Father Lantum, which was part of his journey and definitely helpful, but he never really embraced the idea of working through his trauma or understanding his own identity crisis. And I think most times when people would like try to help him through it, he'd dismiss it. Mm -hmm. um, this still works for his character, but if he was never really going to approach the idea of therapy, then they never really needed to toss it out there. Um, they do that often enough with other characters that could be open to therapy, like Aaron or Foggy. We never see them in it, so it's apparent that any coping is done off screen until it's time for another plot event to grab hold of them. I still think this was handled alright with Matt with Matt and Karen by the end of season 3, but characters like Foggy don't really get much attention to their issues outside of a few vent sessions. Obviously, no one's signed up for sitting with the characters through countless therapy sessions. Which, <laughs> I, you know, and I say that, but there are some shows where they handle that really well. What's, what's that show we watched on Netflix with the girl, the young girl? <laughs> Never Have I Ever. Never Have I Ever. I always forget the title yeah. of it. They did that one really well where she's like going through therapy. So, but you know, that's not necessarily why we're here with the superhero shows. But it wouldn't hurt to represent a positive approach to dealing with trauma. Even just as simple as offhandedly mentioning therapy or a session within which they learned something and like actually calling it therapy and not one yeah. of the many ways that they avoid that. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. <laughs> I also agree with you in that Matt doesn't need to go to therapy necessarily, but yeah, what purpose does it serve for therapy to be brought up and then immediately shut down? Wow. <laughs> I just got war flashbacks to Gotham. <laughs> On that note, I also think that Frank doesn't necessarily need to be in therapy for like half a season, but even one scene would have been enough. And come to think of it, I feel that if they had shown therapy in a positive light for other characters like you said, Karen or Foggy, or even dove more into Curtis and his own journey as someone who leads group sessions, I think it would even underscore the points that they may have been trying to make with Matt and Frank. Right. It would have shown a contrast in how they approach these issues, and it really would have cemented that they have this need to act as a hero or punisher or what have you. And obviously that wasn't the case. But you you know who did get to be seen in therapy though? The villains. The villains. So in these two shows, we've seen two significant representations of therapy. And to start, we'll be diving into Benjamin. I feel like I'm saying his last name like incorrectly. I'm just gonna not say. No, how do you? How are you saying it? I don't know. Poindexter. Poindexter. Is this a? I I keep like thinking like Poindexter. Like French. 
flabbergasted. Yeah, but I don't think that's, that's just because I don't know. Yeah, I don't think that's right either. But I'm also like, damn it. Okay, whatever. We're going to be diving into Benjamin Poindexter, aka Bullseye, aka Dex, because there's no way I'm gonna be calling him Bullseye. <laughs> I'm sorry. Even I have standards. <laughs> hey, hey, we have to start somewhere. Yes. <laughs> okay. So I guess to give a recap, we're sort of supposed to be led astray or misled in the beginning of season three with Dex. Basically, they paint him as someone supposedly very stable. In a professionally mandated check-in for his mental health, he talks about his support system, Julie. Then, of course, as the plot unravels, we understand that Dex doesn't actually have much of a relationship with this Julie. Um, beyond having worked at a suicide hotline together a few years prior. Oh, also, he stalks her, which is why he can speak to a lot of details surrounding her, like her favorite pizza toppings. And later, when Fisk is being Fisk and finding out what makes the FBI tick, he gets a hold of a box of cassette tapes, which essentially hold all the information he could ever have on Dex because they are audio recordings of his therapy sessions from when he was a child. So from childhood until, let's say, late adolescence, Dex was seeing a therapist named Dr. Eileen Mercer. And the interesting note here is that unlike Billy, who we'll get into in a moment, Daredevil actually shows us through Mercer's notes what his possible diagnoses are. So we see her write borderline personality, bleh, borderline personality disorder, sorry, it's the T again, and psychopathic tendencies. So the reason this can matter is because it gives the audience a quick understanding of what kind of character we're getting to know by removing any vague implications. With Billy, we don't actually really know what he might be diagnosed with. We're meant to shape his personality through what other people say about him, which leads us to the positively and yet sometimes negatively vague idea of his motivations that we've mentioned in previous episodes. It also allows viewers of the show to recognize and understand when a character might be representing their own, like their own real world, like the audience's diagnosis. I think the fact that Dr. Mercer writes psychopathic tendencies is important for us to understand, not just on a surface level, but overall, because it's an introductory assumption about what kind of person he is. I'm not an expert with psychopathy or ASPD, which is antisocial personality disorder. But what I have seen suggests generally that there isn't typically a motivation to be morally good in real world cases. Dex stands apart from a character like, say, Kilgrave from Jessica Jones because he actively pursues or attempts empathy outside of simply just getting by in public. He crosses several lines with Julie, but there's this idea that he's actually sincere about wanting to be like her and share in her empathy and kindness. This could be a misunderstanding on the writer's part, or my part even, or it could be a complex approach to how a character like Dex might address his own personality. Yeah. And on the other hand, I have more of a Greek salad in my heart about Dex's BPD symptoms. That is, I have very mixed feelings about them. I remember that <laughs> had to slide in a food joke in there because um, I realized we didn't really talk about our snacks or anything. I'm having coffee. I have there you go. <laughs> there you go. That's our little, <laughs> we're still at the beanery. Okay. <laughs> so I remember that watching the deck-centric episode was actually quite a surreal and upsetting experience for me because I wasn't 
anticipating it. I think mostly that had to do with the fact that someone important to me who is no longer in my life really, really, really loved Daredevil, but also did not treat me great. And I was really upset that this may have been their only exposure in media to someone with P BPD, because as much as I personally am fond of Dex for all his very apparent flaws, he's still a killer and posited as an antagonist and villain. And he's the only fictional character I've seen in all my life with BPD or BPD symptoms. So that's neat-ish. <laughs> there were some symptoms that they really did nail, uh, at least in my experience. Particularly, whenever Dex seemed to get overwhelmed, there was this buzzing sound that grew and grew, and if I ever had to describe what it's like to be slammed by the emotional intensity that comes with BPD, which is often also called emotionally unstable personality disorder, it would be eerily similar to that. And whenever I feel that burst of anger or hurt, it does sort off as kind of simmering. So they kind of like built that off really well. Kind of like a black scribble intensifying on the stick body that is me, only for the scribble to eventually take over. So yeah, I thought artistically that was pretty accurate. Plus when it came to his feeling abandoned or slighted by Julie or Ray or even his baseball coach, you could really feel the shame just emanating from him and I felt very seen by that. Side note, Wilson Bethel did great and he deserves more credit for this particular performance. But anyway, here's where my fears and concerns and all that fun stuff lie. The whole murdering thing. If you aren't already aware, BPD is a very very stigmatized disorder. Often people with BPD are alienated by people in their lives and even some in the mental health community. That is, some of us with this disorder are downright turned away simply for having BPD and those with BPD are painted as monsters or sometimes as being incapable of having long-lasting and healthy relationships. I should know because I've been painted that way and I've seen the discourse quote unquote, online. So with that in mind, let's get back to Dex. Here we have a character who struggles with this intense fear of abandonment, whose emotions can come in strong flashes, and who unfortunately kills people. And yeah, we might know or understand that Dex's killing might not necessarily be like a direct correlation with his BPD or like it's like a total causal cause and effect thing. But because media is like, you know, subjective <laughs> and because the show sort of left that up for interpretation, who's to say that someone didn't walk away from the show thinking that if an individual has BPD and their symptoms flare, that they'll kill somebody. Yeah, the thing is, his psychopathic tendencies, in quotes, absolutely ties in with his BPD, right? They, they have to work together because they're part of him. <laughs> and because those are the only two diagnoses we get a glimpse at, even if they are only her first read on him, we have to conclude narratively that those mean something and that they stand relevant. Otherwise, they wouldn't have shown it to us. <laughs> Yes. So, if the psychopathy plays into him murdering people when he spirals away from his support system, then unfortunately the BPD gets lumped in too. So you're totally right that it only further stigmatizes it, even if it was great to see a character explicitly diagnosed with BPD. It's also a little unfortunate 
because with this representing one of a few instances of recurring therapy in these shows, the process is delegitimized because he starts out seeking therapy, finding something positive in it, and then he's forced to abandon it. Ugh, yeah, my little heart is breaking all over again for him. Um, yeah, so to that point, when Dex loses every pillar of support he has, he, and though we issued a content warning at the start of this episode, I'm going to issue one now again for suicide, he's seemingly left with no other option, and he is literally about to end his life when Fisk swoops in. And the rage is filling me again. <laughs> I'm angry because while this is technically accurate, since seven out of ten people diagnosed with BPD die by suicide, it's just, I don't know, super upsetting. That's it. That's all I have to say to that. Like, that's, it's super fucking upsetting. Yeah, it's, it was really hard to sit through that episode. <laughs> um,. Mm. I'm really tired of seeing suicide expressed in these shows as, like, something casual to get over, too. Mm-hmm. Or even when it's a villain and, like, a hero doesn't care. Like, let me tell yeah. you something. Matt wouldn't care. <laughs> so oh it's hard to root for that, right? It can be argued that Matt and Frank are suicidal. I don't I don't even know why I said argued because they are but there's there's not typically a drive to push them to something better and to that point nobody really calls it what it is yes um I think we see a little bit more pushback with Matt because his friends are so reasonably upset to see him like that low on himself especially in season three obviously right um Curtis kind of plays a little bit of a role like that for Frank, but I don't think he's actually that... Like, he doesn't lean into it as much as he could. Mm -hmm. uh, Because he very much still just supports Frank as he is. Basically, in season three, Matt kind of, quote-unquote, gets better, right? But when it's good, it's kind of, like, not acknowledged anymore that he was suicidal like it's a, you can talk about it yeah. like don't use it as some big scary moment and then drop it and and for Dex I understand to a point why it would be dropped because he didn't have anyone right mm-hmm. but all this aside they definitely still hit this better than Gotham ever did and I'll be grateful <laughs> for that much don't get her started on Jim Gordon in season three. We could do an entire episode on how they absolutely mishandled his health. I'm sure that when we talked about season three, I was pissed about it. I don't remember. <laughs> but anyway, Daredevil. <laughs> yes. In this way, Daredevil represented some elements accurately, but may also have caused some serious harm with regards to that stigmatization. Um, As you said, the process of accessing mental health support is delegitimized. Oh my god, the freaking tease. Um, I know. I don't think this was actually like featured in any of the previous episodes. I struggle with the T's, like multiple sounds, which is oh god, here's another word. It's definitely apparent in drum roll. I don't know if you can hear that. I'm gonna try to drum roll loudly. Sorry, the Punisher. Do we have to talk about them? 
We have to. <laughs> to contrast Dex, the only character to be seen in therapy, and I'm gonna make a note here, therapy as in like with a licensed therapist and not a counselor. Because like we do have Curtis and we do see Lewis, for example, with Curtis. The only other character that goes to a licensed therapist in these two shows is Billy Russo. So the Punisher overall handles therapy and the idea of it very poorly. <laughs> so we're already not off to a great start. We're set up with the counseling, which is not bad for the record, but it is a group counseling session. And I think if you asked Curtis, he wouldn't say that he's a licensed therapist. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's not ever explicitly stated. I could be wrong, but it is a little different. And group therapy gets some a different result than individualized therapy. Aside from that, the characters regularly dismiss the idea of therapy. And so naturally the only time we see a therapist is when she's mandated to help Billy after he's hospitalized. Unlike Dex, he didn't go when he was younger. At least we have no implication that he did. It seems like with all of the stuff that he dealt with when he was a kid, he kind of handled it on his own and or went to the military to deal with it, which is something that actually happens for a lot of people. Also, I know Dex didn't choose to go to therapy either. He was also mandated a therapist when he was younger, but it was early on. So if he if he had seen a therapist when he was younger, then maybe things would have ended up a little different, but he's but because he's a villain of the story, I you know, we understand why he didn't. <laughs> but that's not the issue that I have with Dr. Dumont. More like Dr. Dumont. <laughs> Just just stop all together. I know I mentioned in a previous episode that I was kind of like excited when I first saw Krista because yeah. I have a BS in psychology and I know a lot of people in my life often talk about psychology and philosophy and you know human behavior and self-reflection. So it was really great to finally see a character in these shows introduced to therapy in a way that could be like promising. Like there's a good conflict there if Billy starts to be quote unquote a good person you know what I mean I know he's a villain but he was humanized in this really complex way that sometimes you just wanted to root for him or like not not necessarily root for him but just you wanted him to like stop messing up <laughs> like stop hurting people maybe at least get him to a point where he could like really even address his actions it's the same reason that frank doesn't actually kill him off right like he wants him to face what he's done so therapy in a less menacing way <laughs> can be a great storytelling tool that both pushes a character forward and represents something positive through the process but uh yeah yeah we um we didn't get that we definitely did not <laughs> krista started out very promising. She was calm and collected more than I could ever be in practice and knew what she was talking about. She had great ideas to help Billy with his amnesia and his nightmares. And she stood up for her patient when Dina came in to like aggravate him, right? I felt that these were solid qualities for someone who must be as accomplished as she is to take on a character like Billy. I didn't even break when he held her hostage as he left the hospital. 
or when she let him stay at her house. Like, that is decent storytelling and puts her in a very difficult position. And we see Krista consider her options as far as, like, calling the police or taking care of her patient. And that's all pretty fair, I think, for this kind of show. I feel like it would have made a little more sense for her to take more care for her own safety. But in any case, the biggest turning point was, of course, when Billy takes her relationship, their relationship, to a, um... A weird romantic level, if you can say romantic. It went from her, like, rejecting it vehemently at the end of one episode, which was hard enough to watch on its own, to her, like, immediately being weirdly okay with it. And I mean, I don't know as much as I could about, like, Stockholm Syndrome or any other behavioral changes for self-preservation, but it didn't feel like a thoughtful example of her adapting to her situation. It felt more like a perversion of the practice for shock volume. Yeah, I remember at the time that the cast, or at least Floriana and Ben, spoke of Billy and Krista as the... (laughs) I might throw up in my mouth. (laughs) Central love story (laughs) for season two. And they sort of praised it for being this expression of Billy's complexity. I vehemently disagree. It not only perverted the practice, but it fetishized Krista and completely discredited her. Um, So, like, so much for your degree and what we thought was a genuine desire to respect and help your patient to heal. It's wild to see the contrast, too, between Krista at the start of the season, where, you know, you just listed some great examples of how she was helpful and, like, I don't know, how she had a handle on things, uh, versus Krista, who orchestrates three, like, innocent women's murders, all so that she could go live a life with Billy Russo, free from the ghost of Frank Castle. And one of the tweets earlier touched on gender dynamics and abusive relationships. And to echo you, it is really unsettling to sit there and watch Billy uh, initiate their romance. Mm. Likewise, it's jarring to see Krista manipulate Billy just so she can keep him at her side. She sort of reacts coldly to him in a few instances through the second half of the season and is clearly exasperated that he's not yet over Frank Castle when, hello, (laughs) he's a huge stressor and component to Billy's trauma. Like, I thought you gave a shit beyond just running away with him. And, you know, I get it. She has her own trauma. Frankly, though, it came off as disjointed, where Dex's fear of abandonment feels palpable and some of his more extreme reactions, upsetting as they are, feel earned. Krista is kind of a floppy character, and not only is she floppy, but again, in discrediting herself as a therapist, she undermines therapy as a healthy and necessary process and practice in the show. We certainly don't see enough of Curtis, even though, you know, he's like, I don't want to say just a counselor, but to your point, like, he hasn't gone through... I guess the rigorous training that we thought Krista went through (laughs) and we don't see enough of his group sessions to really say that, you know, his positive representation combats this. And although Dina evidently turns out to be right to distrust Krista, it is kind of an icky thing to be right to distrust this therapist because she turns out to be the one who's planned out innocent murders and, I mean, like, even if they weren't innocent, you know. 
it's murder uh and is working with the murderer and is really really emotionally abusive and manipulative like we have the tragedy i just don't see the romance like if they're gonna paint it as oh there's a tragic romance in season two also also and another thing (laughs) there's something downright nasty and trigger warning for sexual abuse the fact that krista knows that billy like she knows his history and not likely she knows that he was abused as a kid and she still engages in this relationship and is abusive herself nasty <laughs> very it just doesn't feel well thought out and it feels like they wanted to give billy someone to both work with him and even redirect some of his passion onto but they didn't want it to be the same dynamic as him and dina so she was just kind of like all over the place this feels very much like lee in gotham by the way in that krista is introduced as what can be assumed is a pretty well-versed psychologist but she actually is a complete disaster when it comes to her work uh that was one of the most infuriating things about lee when we watched gotham and because everyone talked about her as if she was credible but we didn't usually see it So Krista is talked about and represented as a knowledgeable psychologist, but often it just felt like she was psychoanalyzing to psychoanalyze and couldn't hold a conversation with anyone without manipulating something out of them. That's bad representation at the very least, which doesn't hold up well with how stigmatized therapy is in the show anyway. Like if the other characters were more accepting of therapy and we had more instances of therapy in here then maybe it wouldn't stand out so much. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As far as, as the stigma around therapy goes in the show, Frank separates himself from veterans with PTSD in Daredevil and The Punisher. He goes to the counseling like a couple of times. Curtis at one point separates himself too, despite leading the counseling session. I don't remember exactly what he said. I don't know if it was that he was like, he didn't need it or something like that, but I remember that it came up. And Dina vehemently opposes the idea of therapy almost to a point Mm. where it's like, yeah, we get it. Therapy's bad. Like We've touched on that a little in the past, but if there was ever a protagonist that would benefit from therapy in a meaningful way on screen, it's Dina fucking Madani. Yeah, think about it. She loses her partner, Ahmad Zubair, and immediately throws herself into a new position to try and get to the bottom of his death. Then within a short span of, let's say, a few months, because I'm assuming that's how long Punisher season one took, Mm -hmm. uh, she loses her new partner, Sam Stein. And we establish early on that, again, Dina's not one to just jump into relationships, but she's in one with Billy Russo, who turns out to be the one who killed Sam. Oh, and then she gets shot in the head by the guy. And he wakes up, and he doesn't remember the shit that he's done. Um, yeah, she needs therapy. And I mean, we get a little of why she might be opposed. Her mother is a psychiatrist or psychotherapist, I forget. And we get the sense in season one that she's been psychoanalyzed a lot, which is probably why she's, um, I guess, what's the word? irritated by the thought of going to therapy and this is also probably why she's unimpressed with krista off the bat still it is interesting and annoying that the only character dina does end up sort of opening up to is krista who as we've just established does a shitty job at her job 
Again, it's interesting how heroes and villains alike can share in the experience of trauma, but therapy is only for the bad guys. <laughs> it sends this messaging that in order to heal, you have to just do it yourself. That's what Dina did. Off screen, apparently, that's what Matt did, even though he hurt so many people along the way. But don't bother going to therapy because it won't help. It certainly didn't help lost causes like Billy or Dex. Or Lewis. And another character I thought would benefit from therapy, if we ever saw her again, was Amy. I think that her crawling under the bed in season two and crying was so poignant for me. And I'm glad and relieved that they did dive a little more into that specific trauma. So like what the significance of her crawling under the bed was, what it meant to hide. But you know, even if they hadn't, it communicated so much and it had the same effect for me as Dex's buzzing. So you know, they there were some highlights. Yeah, some. Yeah. I think the writing and performances by the actors for sure lent to the more compelling aspects of how both shows handled mental health. But when it came to the nitty gritty of it all, that is with actual mental health professionals and how they approached therapy and diagnoses, that's ultimately where they fell flat on their fucking faces. They were great when the story called for the references or trauma to be vague, but not so great when actual research was involved, mayhaps. Right, like, your stories don't have to follow a specific set of rules, right? But it's careless not to take some consideration with the story. In fact, when you put more care into it and still pull off the conflict, it's more impactful all around. Dex does mostly well because of certain choices they make in expressing his disorders. But Krista, for example, does really poorly because they shoved a bunch of things into a character with no real build. I know that they were a little constricted, you know, but it still stands. You know who was constricted? Bojack Horseman. And you know who did great with ending Bojack Horseman? The creators of Bojack Horseman. Absolutely. Furthermore, representation matters. It just does. We don't need to have an argument. It does. One single piece of work may not change how a person views something, but research supports the idea that media can and does shape general perception. And it's also shaped by general perception, so you might perpetuate it. The stigma surrounding mental health and mental disorders has been reflected in media for the unique purpose of demonizing those disorders. So when we don't consciously make an effort to combat those ideas, we perpetuate a stigma used to disenfranchise real people. Um, Sure, people could do more research outside of their favorite superhero show, but for a lot of young people especially, or older people that, you know, just don't, (laughs) um, this may be their first stop on that road, and if it doesn't pertain to them, they might not seek it out any further than that. Instead of just showing therapy fail with villains, they could have balanced it out with more healthy representations among our protagonists. I don't mean seeking support through friends or God, even if those things did kind of work, but to specifically seek it through a licensed therapist because that is where the stigma lies. Let Dina see a therapist to cope with her very real, very fresh trauma over Billy. I can imagine if we reached a Punisher season three or a Daredevil season four, that would have been a great opportunity to show characters like Dina and Karen healing from what they've faced in the past by reaching a point where they're willing to explore therapy. We don't get that, sadly, but that doesn't mean it couldn't have been portrayed sooner with a main character. Off the top of my head, I think a show that has handled this really 
well recently is This Is Us. One of the mm-hmm. characters stubbornly refused to seek help through therapy. Then when he decided to see it through, we get to follow along with his emotional conflict. It's hard for him, and he realizes his current therapist isn't even the right fit for him. This is all important information because the general public should be able to see it represented. Healthy examples of care and support from mental health professionals. I mean, I'm still really bad at maneuvering through those spaces for my own mental health, and part of that is definitely because of the societal stigma that shaped my view of like vulnerability and seeking help. Insert shrug emoji. Yeah, I didn't start going to therapy until I was 19, and it was entirely due to a crisis, and it really shouldn't be like that. I had the misconception, even then, that once I was in the clear, or rather once my symptoms were no longer as intense or worrisome, that I didn't need it anymore. Then last year, I started seeing a therapist regularly, not because I was in the crisis again, but because I wanted to prevent being in that state or I wanted to learn how to better manage my symptoms and emotions. I come from a marginalized community too, where although we have a concerning amount of depressed youth, we fail to come forward and seek help because of how our culture perceives mental health and yeah, the act of seeking help. I was fortunate in that my parents were both psychology majors, so they believed that this shit exists. And God, some of my friends who I grew up with, they still see mental health as something to be talked about only when there is a crisis. Not only that, but mental health support is not as accessible because it's just not as affordable because it doesn't receive as much funding. So I don't know, the bare minimum for me is that if you're going to be putting out content that features mentally ill characters or sheds some sort of light on therapy, be responsible about it. You don't know who your audience is and how they might take that. We know already that these shows have an impact too. It can be done. I mean, Becca just said that it's being done. Also, don't make it so that there's some sort of dichotomy between good and bad characters where, yeah, only bad characters go to Arkham Asylum or seek therapy. Also, don't fetishize therapists. It's hard work as it is to find one that's the right fit. And I feel like that's just, again, asking for the bare minimum. (laughs) In any case, do better, guys. Uh, That's the general guys of the public that write stories. (laughs) Um, Again, I definitely think that as far as characters coping with trauma or conflict or their own depression go, we get to see it, especially in Daredevil, in a pretty well thought out way. They take their time with main characters at least, and at times the vagueness about their struggles can work through the story. It can be really compelling to read into a situation or see without words so much as actions how a character is coping or trying to take care of themselves. So imagine just how much more compelling it would be when all of those aspects are handled better. Obviously, for us, it's not exactly so bad we're turned away. Okay, maybe for The Punisher Season 2, because (laughs) it was so hard to get through that. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. I sat through the last season of Game of Thrones out of stubbornness, so that really has nothing to do with the show itself. It was bad. The last season was very bad. Extremely bad, incredibly upsetting. (laughs) In any case, thank you for listening to us rant and ramble about what was extremely bad and incredibly upsetting for us. I hope it wasn't Game of Thrones bad listening to us. Hmm, a girl can dream. Two girls can dream. So stay up to date with what we're doing by following our socials. We're on Twitter at Bat Beanery, Instagram at Breakfast Beanery. 
breakfastbeanery.tumblr.com and breakfastbeanery.com. We also have something of an announcement. Yeah, so initially we planned to extend this series through the holidays. We had plenty of episodes planned out, but we were thinking about our current interests and what we wanted to do with the future of this podcast. So this is the, well, the second to last episode of the first season of Breakfast at the Beanery. Insert sad violin music. Very sad. We started this as a fun way to express some of our thoughts when casually watching shows we loved. So not only did we kind of throw ourselves into it without a lot of foresight, but it was also my first time, at least, working with podcasts. Yeah, and to that point, we want to take some time to really plan out another season and return with more solid content for everyone. We'll likely branch out from older shows and share our thoughts on current ones too, and refine segments so that they're more entertaining and exciting. We also have another podcast series on the brain, so if you like the supernatural... Not that supernatural. The the genre of the supernatural, of course. (laughs) We've talked a little bit about the Vampire Diaries on this show, and we decided to explore a little more of worlds like that in the future, so keep an eye out on our socials, and especially the website, breakfastbeauty.com for future shows and updates and also just subscribe to us on youtube yes please you'll see more there yes we really appreciate all of the love you've given to us during these last nine episodes and we hope that you'll be excited to join us more in the future when we cover more super stories maybe even with a new look something that uh pops We're, we're figuring it out thank you again for joining us today we'll see you well We'll see you next time for a special episode to round off the season. Until then, take care and be well.